the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Um, we uh, turn our attention to this uh, provocative piece in the Atlantic as to the Trump amendments to the Constitution. You say Trump didn't amend the Constitution. Uh, the author of the piece, Jonathan Rauch, disagrees. Not formally he didn't amend it in consultation with states and or Congress, but uh, informally he did in five significant ways, and he suggests that those informal normative amendments to the way that uh, our representative republic operates by Trump represents a danger to the future of said republic. Well, let's go through them, shall we? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Jonathan Rausch. He is a contributing writer at The Atlantic National and National Journal and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to meet you, Dan. Yeah, good to meet you. And so this, uh, let's, let's just go, you know, one through five, because they're all um, good discussion fodder. Uh, first is uh, with respect to impeachment, impeachments, plural, I should say. And uh, your suggestion that uh, uh, no president, the, the new amendment per Trump is no president gets removed if he's got a minority of the Senate that that will protect him. And I well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll let you start and suggest why that you why, why you think that's the case and and how that differs than what the founders envisioned, making the removal of a president from office something that was going to be a very high bar. So it didn't it didn't devolve into strict partisan politics. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll begin by just making the broad point about the article, that it's about presidential power and how over time presidents have accumulated more and more power at the expense of Congress. And that is not what the founders intended. They wanted the Congress, the closest branch to the people, to be the most important branch. And this is not something that's new to Trump. It's been going on now for several decades. And my argument is not that, you know, Donald Trump came along out of the blue and overturned everything. It's that we're seeing the culmination of some trends, which have some pretty broad implications for democracy. So, yeah, I tried to figure out five ways in which that was happening. Well, yeah, I mean, just impeachment. Yeah. Well, just sorry to interrupt, but I mean, yeah, right. Art Schlesinger wrote the book, The Imperial Presidency in 1973. So, I mean, uh, and and Richard Neustadt's presidential power in the 60s. So, right. I mean, it's it's just interesting. That's that's, right. And I. Yes, that's I I just go ahead. Go ahead. that all of the things that I'm talking about here have earlier precedents before mm-hmm. Trump. So mm-hmm. that's important to remember. But the first one on impeachment is impeachment's the only mechanism to remove a malfeasant um, officer of the federal government. There's really no other way to do it. And it was designed for a period without any political parties. The founders thought, well, you know, Congress will just get together and they'll, uh, they'll act institutionally as Congress. They'll protect their own prerogatives and they'll get rid of a president who's who's behaving badly. Well, that started to break down in 1998 when the Democrats basically supported Bill Clinton on a partisan basis. But those were, you know, pretty minor 
Trump was impeached twice, both for serious things. I'd argue the second time for just a terrible thing. And um, I was protected by uh, members of his own party, not even all of them. But what that showed is that impeachment is kind of a dead letter for a president who can get support of a significant fraction of his party. And that's kind of a permission slip for presidents to worry not about staying on the right side of their law, but on the right side of their party. And that's, that's not what James Madison had in mind. Well, but with with the uh, thinking about that, I mean, certainly um, Nixon resigned from office rather than be removed because he had lost the support of his party. So it, it seems to me that something where you have uh, a president dead to rights on doing something that is a high crime and or misdemeanor, as uh, Nixon did, then, um, you know, that you will have members of your own party that think about their political survival, which is what all politicians are generally thinking about and will move on their a president of their party. Uh, it just wasn't a, a, a good enough evidentiary case, either round one or round two, for the Democrats and, and the, the public to be convinced that uh, that Republicans should move on their the president from their party. Well, that's that's certainly one way to look at it. I you know, substantively don't don't agree that the case wasn't strong, especially the second time around. Um, I I would agree with the House managers who said if. If you won't remove a president for doing something like this, bringing a, a, um, a riot to the streets, I don't know if he intended a capital invasion. I kind of doubt that. But bringing him into the streets, what would you? But we could set that disagreement aside and just ask ourselves, well, suppose you're, you're the next president, you know, whether you're from the, the left or the right, and you look at the record that's of the last 30 years, and especially the Trump years, how worried are you about impeachment now? Uh, what do you think it is that will actually lead your party to abandon you in the Senate? And if you probably think, well, probably nothing. As long as I keep my ties to my party strong, as long as I worry about that, then then I don't really need to worry about impeachment. At least I think that's the conclusion I would draw. Hmm. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm there, but um, I want to come back and, uh, and get to some of the other uh, amendments you suggest. Again, normative, not uh, actual amendments that uh, occurred under the Trump presidency as uh, the power of the presidency in America continues its expansion as it has over the last 50 years. More with uh, Jonathan Rausch right after this. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Jonathan Rausch. He's a contributing writer at The Atlantic and National Journal, Journal, excuse me, senior fellow at the Brookings Institutions, and he's uh, written this uh, think piece over at The Atlantic uh, entitled The Five Trump Amendments to the Constitution, Informal. And we were talking about the first with respect to impeachment. Let's move on so we can cover more turf here. The Second Amendment, I think actually we would agree on, even though we may be coming from some different uh, perspectives uh, philosophically, and uh, the Second Amendment relates to congressional oversight and uh, that what is mandated has now become optional with respect to Congress. Yeah, it's just uh, it's just very hard now for Congress to to get documents from the executive branch, to get testimony for the executive branch if the executive doesn't want to provide it. And that, too, that's a trend that's been going on. For years, and you know, it actually began under George Washington when Congress started asking him for stuff. Uh, but nothing like what we saw under President Trump, where he just he just flatly stonewalled. He just said, "You get nothing." Period. 
And, you know, an earlier president could have done that, but, but they didn't. And the result of that was showing that Congress really lacked the ability uh, to respond to that. So from now on, I think we've got a precedent that's going to give the president a lot more power uh, to avoid oversight. Well, it's interesting, too, though, even you know, there is this uh, un, speaking of things that are unofficial, this unofficial fourth branch of government, uh, the bureaucracy, the administrative state. And um, it, it, part of what I would say with respect to congressional oversight, it runs in a couple of different directions or the lack thereof. You had a, a president. You had a majority in the Senate. For a short time, you had a majority in the House as well. Um, but but this, a president plus a Senate majority was unable to get documents it wanted from particular administrative agencies and law enforcement agencies over the course of a number of topic areas as well. And that was a source of frustration for uh, individuals like Ron Johnson, the chairman of the Homeland Security Committee. Now, you may agree or not agree with uh, the position that uh, a Senate committee chairman was taking. But in terms of the oversight responsibility that Congress has, and so for Homeland Security Committee, specific agencies, sort of undeniable. So it's interesting that the, the administrative state can also frustrate even the majority party, if you will, and the president. Yeah, well, they can if the uh, – well, I don't know if they can frustrate the president because if the president just says flatly, you got to produce the documents, I think, I think then they will. Uh, but, yeah, there are lots of levels at which the executive branch can, can frustrate these things. But the, the big point here is what power does Congress have? You know, if Congress says, you know, in the Fast and Furious investigation, for example, in the Obama years, says, look, you guys are stonewalling. We've had enough. We're defunding the Pentagon until you produce documents. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the way the Constitution's supposed to work, but we all know there's no way Congress can do that because it's too dangerous to defund the Pentagon, and it's politically toxic. And, and what's been revealed in the last few years is there's really not much Congress can do if the executive branch just says, go away, we don't want oversight. And that's something I would think conservatives, constitutional conservatives, would be concerned about. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, amendment number three, we'll stick with uh, Congress. Congressional appropriations shall, shall be suggestions. Uh, and the president, the executive, can choose whether or not to comply with the spending laws Congress passes. Uh, illustrate that. Not a new fight. Certainly happened under Nixon when Nixon refused to spend money Congress appropriated. But Congress hit back in the 70s. They passed a law and said, Mr. President, you need to do what we say. And that worked for a while. But as we've seen more partisan gridlock on Capitol Hill, we've seen more and more efforts by presidents to circumvent that by spending the way they want to spend. And once again, uh, President Trump brought that to a new level by just flatly declaring an emergency on the southern border and dipping into the Pentagon accounts to fund the border wall. And that was that may have been legal uh, to some extent. I can't mm -hmm. remember how the court cases came out. But to go back to our the overall point you and I have been discussing, Dan, what could Congress do about it? Well, it turned out basically nothing. Well, this is, uh, and, and I know ultimately he had a Supreme Court decision that, that backed it up, but I mean, this is also... Uh, exec, you know, doing things by executive fiat that run afoul of federal law and just saying, I know this runs afoul of federal law, but uh, I'm going to do it anyway. And then the courts can ultimately weigh in if they so choose. And this is Obama's designations with uh, with the DACA program. And then uh, ultimately during the Trump administration. 
the uh, court suggesting in a, in a wild decision that has real implications for presidential power going forward that um, you you can't undo something a previous president did even illegally without going through an administrative process. You can't just undo one executive order with another, even if that executive order was illicit. Uh, I don't know, actually, if that cuts for presidential power or against it. I mean, I guess if you can overrule uh, federal law, then it sort of cuts for presidential power, doesn't it? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not in the weeds on that particular decision. As, as I understood it, the president could make that change, but not quickly. It would have to go through the whole rulemaking process, which takes years. Right. So I the, thought that was a procedural decision. The, the but, subsequent. But I'm not sure, but the yeah, the subsequent. Point you're making, yes. I think yeah. is right. Yeah. Which is um, DACA, I think, on the law, I think personally it was legal, but I also think it was unwise because it was another of these maneuvers to circumvent Congress, and it was another instance where Congress was not able to rise to the challenge of reasserting its power. So, again, this is not a new thing, but it's something I think everyone should be concerned about. Uh, and uh, let's get uh, – we only have time for one more, so um, I think I want to stick with number four um, the, uh, the with respect to presidential appointments. And um, you suggest that uh, under Trump – uh, this, uh, again, rose to a new level, the idea that the president has the authority to make appointments as he sees fit without the advice and consent of the Senate. Yep. Again, not brand new, but taken by Trump to a, a way new level is evading the uh, the Senate process of advice and consent on appointments by using acting and temporary officials. And he can do that for up to two and a half years, and right. then he can file a lawsuit and continue it. So that's, that gets around the Senate's most important mechanism for holding officials accountable. He is Jonathan Rausch, contributing writer at The Atlantic, which we were discussed, discussing his piece there, and National Journal. He's also a senior fellow at the Brookings Institutions. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Show at danproftshow.com.